I'm my loyal listeners. Today, I wanted to give you a little bit of good news. Um, if you put in podcast 35, it's a code that'll work on my site through the end of April, and you can take advantage of some of my greatest and best items. The whole site is available to you. So I know shopping might seem crazy at this time, but that's how we pay the bills. That's how we keep all of our employees employed and stick around as a business. So I definitely and always appreciate your support. Thank you. Hi, everyone. You're listening to Superwomen. Today's guest is Aliza Licht. Uh, she's a good friend of mine. She is the incredible writer, entrepreneur, wrote a book called Leave Your Mark has a podcast, of course, called Leave Your Mark, as well as was the famous DKNY PR girl. So we talk about a lot of things, her journey, and uh, I was also on her podcast as well. So download hers and listen to this. Hi, I'm here with Elisa Licht, and we have so much to talk about. I'm so, first of all, I'm so happy to see you in person. I know. I feel like I just want to shoot the shit with you and not Well, we're going to shoot the shit right now. So I would love for you to give a little bit of a backstory of who you are, what you've done. Sure. So um, not as much as you. <laughs> oh, stop it. Um, you know, over 20 years in fashion, I started on the magazine side of the business, moved over to PR in the late 90s, spent most of my career working for Donna Karen, ended up as head of global communications. Um, probably most um, known for my work creating DKY PR Girl, the anonymous social media personality back in the day, which is now over a decade ago. And I can't believe I'm still talking about it. And can, then- Can we talk about that? Because I remember yes. when that happened and the whole world was talking about like, who's DKY PR Girl? And, you know, everyone was jealous that DKNY had this persona that like was so cool. And when you created that, did you know it was going to make that impact? Or were you like, let me just try something? No, it was it was really a hack because, you know, we were sitting around as a marketing team. We had a Facebook page and we heard about this thing called Twitter and no one really knew what it was. But me being in PR, I was like, well, if we create at Donna Karen, they're going to assume she's tweeting. Right. And then that's going to become my problem. Right. Because <laughs> then what it, you know, who's writing that? Like, who's responding? Maybe she's up at one in the morning. Exactly. So I, it was Gossip Girl season two. And I was like, well, why does anyone have to know who it is? Why can't we do like DKY PR Girl? It was literally that simple. Wow. So, you know, legal just said, great idea, but only Eliza can do it because they wanted to control it. Because right. obviously, you know, it can get out of hand. Um, so we didn't make it anonymous to make it like, it was more because it was inspired by Gossip Girl who was anonymous and we just didn't tell anyone who it was. It wasn't important who it was, right? but then obviously it caught on a little bit. And then your profile became almost bigger than that and everyone wanted to know who you were. And so how did that? Well, in, so I was anonymous for two whole years, which is crazy yeah. because I mean, there were people internally who knew, but everyone kept the secret, which by the way, who does that? Nobody no keeps a secret Never. for two years. I mean, I remember like Bergdorf coming to market and like harassing our sales team. Like you have to tell us. And they were like, we can't. But then it became, you know, it was like really commonplace because after I started, then Oscar PR girl and all the rest of, there were like a lot of PR girls out there. And um, Teen Vogue had called for me, or not me, it was, they called me as the PR person to invite DKY PR girls to speak at their conference, at their summit. 
And I went into Patty, my boss, and I was like, well, this is a really cool opportunity that we're missing because I can't obviously do that. And then I was like, well, why? I mean, it's been two years already. Like, this is so annoying. And then we kind of just as a group decided like, you know what, let's just pull the veil back and and expose it. So we did. And of course, how that changed was I felt very naked, first of all, because I tended, I don't know if you remember back then, I was pretty snarky a lot of the time. Like I was not just like, you know, this like super, super nice PR girl. I was, I was, I mean, it was funny, but it was definitely, you know, sometimes out there. And, um, but then when it was me, I was like, well, I don't want that attached to like my name. Right. So, but I didn't want to like lose the personality. So I had to just strike that balance. Um, but it, it was just, it became too much to the point that I would go to an event and someone would introduce me like, this is Decoy PR girl. And I, I would have to say like, actually, my name's Lisa. Right. And I'm the head of global communications. I was doing that Donna whole Karen, job. Right? right. So, so I actually had to like erase, work to erase it. Wow. And at what point did you know that there was enough momentum with people being interested in you that you were like, okay, it's time for my next step? Well, I think it was sort of, uh, listen, I'm not a big planner. I'm like notoriously not a planner. Like I don't even know what I'm doing next week, actually. But I will say that um, I was approached to write a book by Grand Central with um, someone who was following me and on Twitter and on the blog called me one day and was like, I think you should write a book. So that was the first time that I was like, oh, is there like more to this? And can I write a book that isn't owned by my company that's like my book? Right. So I obviously ended up doing that. And that just sort of made me feel like I had something of my own. And honestly, I probably would have stayed at Donna Karen just because it was such a wonderful experience. But when Donna stepped down and my mentor, Patty, stepped down, my book had just come out and I was kind of like, is this my cue? Like, right. should I just go on my press my press trip and and be done? Yeah. So I resigned. And then I just told them, listen, I'm going to do book press stuff and I'll stay till the end of the year. Max and Dow from public school had joined the company. I produced their first show, which was my last show. Okay. And it was just like a great, just tying it up with a bow. Were you conflicted emotionally as you left, like leaving like something you'd been at for 10, over 10 years, right? 17. 17. No one works anywhere for that long, ever. Ever. Barely a year you can get out of people these days. I know. <laughs> I know. Except Elizabeth, who's been still with you. I, yeah, it was like, leave. well, first of all, I felt like my family left me first. Right, right, right. And that's really what did it. I would not have left them. Right. I would not have. But when they left, it was kind of like the soul was ripped out of the company. And even though Max and Dow were great, and I, and I had a great time working with them for the brief time I did. Right. It's not the founder. It's not the founder. And it's not you know, we had a real family there. So it just seemed like, you know, that was my cue. So what was it like working for a woman who, like, we all talk about the strides we're trying to make, but like, she really had to break through. Like, she was one of the only women at the time Mm -hmm. who helmed her own company and ran it and started it. What did you learn from her? First of all, one of the most amazing things about her is that she's truly a visionary designer. So we would always joke like, oh God, she's reinventing the wheel again. Like every season, it was like totally something new. And by the way, sometimes we were like, shit, like no one's going to shoot this. Like this is insane. But she was so prolific in the way that she saw fabric that she just constantly did things new. And also, you know, she, of course, like every creative person, I'm sure the same, it's like always pushing for better, for better, for better. So we never sort of 
we sort of always try to like anticipate what else she would want before she would ask for it. I also think that she's such a creative person and she's such a bohemian person also. So with that comes this sort of embracing of creativity from anyone and anywhere. I mean, our receptionist, Leroy, could give her like actual clothing ideas. Be like, Tommy, you should do this. She'd be like, great idea. I'll do it. Like she didn't care what you did. If you had an idea, you could present it. And that, it was the, it was like an anti-hierarchy. So that, you know, if you're creative, like I, I happen to be equal creative and strategic at the same time. Like I really enjoy the creative process. She, she really let people thrive. Yeah. Who could do that? I designed the DKY maternity line when I got pregnant. I was like, why don't we have maternity clothes? you're known for Jersey. She's like, go do it. So I was like, okay, be careful what you ask for. So I literally for three seasons did that line. Wow. Not like as a designer sketching, but like curating. Yeah. yeah. Feeding them ideas. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then what happened after you wrote the book? You went on a book tour. I went on a book tour. I obviously stayed like five more months and um, left at the end of 2015, started consulting hated consulting, hated, um, felt super alone, felt like this is just the worst thing ever. Never wanted to see Soho house again, um, because that's where I mostly worked out of. And, and it was just a lot of running around the city. Things that depressed me were the fact that I couldn't wear heels anymore because I no longer had an expense account, just being real here. So I was like, I need to wear like more Sen- appropriate, sensible, sensible shoes. Yeah, yes. sensible flats. And as you know, I'm not like a sneaker person. No, so that- you're known for your heels and your red lip. Yeah. So what I mean, that was horrendous for me. Um, <laughs> and just, I, you know, I like being part of a team. Yeah. But what's interesting, and, and then that's when I decided to go back in-house um, for a period of time. But now it's different because I've I've been consulting since March, but I'm working out of clients' offices. So I'm immersed in teams. So I'm leading teams at a senior level where they don't necessarily have a CMO. So that's been great because I don't feel like, oh, I'm on my own doing like this consulting job. Like I like being part of an environment. Totally. When you, what was that trigger that, like, I feel like some people know that they're stuck in a rut and they don't know how to get out of it. How did you figure out, like, did you have the alarm bells go off and like, how, how did you make that change? Because I feel like some people are just stuck and then they're just miserable. So I'm really honest with myself. And while I was consulting the first time, I kept what I called a lead sheet. And I'm like super type A. So I was keeping track of every single person I was meeting with, every introduction someone made for me. Because if it led to business, I wanted to remember who to thank. So I was like very diligent about keeping track. Yeah, it's actually great because you do not remember. No. At all. So I, um, I was meeting, you know, listen, with my network, I had I had meetings with everyone. I was meeting with any CEO that I wanted to meet with and and presenting different proposals. And you know, things take time. People take time to make commitments. Sometimes they don't have budget, this that. And at 10 months, I said, "You know what? Let me take a real stock of what this looks like." And I looked at the document and I'm like, "Wow, I'm really connected. I'm like I have met with everyone." And then I was like, "But you know what? I have nothing to show for it." Right. Like I am so unimpressed with myself. And I I think one of the things that I think is really important, and I've always sort of been this way, is when I fail, I'm very public about it. So I wrote an article for Forbes called How You Know You're Not Meant to Be an Entrepreneur. 
And I spoke about the fact that I like called it quits. I was like, basically, you get an F on this consulting thing and you better figure out what you're doing else. And I think when you give yourself permission to fail, it's much easier to move on. I think people who feel like they have to present this perfect outer professional or even like their personal lives, this perfect image, it's really hard because you're constantly covering up things. But I'm, I'm super, I've always been really transparent and I'm, and I think it's really essential to know like, wow, I did not do a good job on that and I need to figure out something else. And also, as this was all happening, I was watching PR, which was my core job, change, right? And not be the same. Fall and, apart. Yes, fall <laughs> apart. Exactly. So I also knew I needed to pivot anyway because the industry was pivoting. Yeah. I feel like for our industry, and, and if you're not in the fashion industry, the whole the whole landscape changed. Nothing worked that worked in the past. Like Agreed. You couldn't just get something in a magazine or on a celebrity and have it sell. Even now, like I'm like, I don't know what that magic bullet is to make people want to buy things. But Yeah. I, you know, I think that's it. I don't think there is a magic bullet. Right. I think it's a culmination of a lot of different things. And you you are a great example of pivoting in a way too with Female Founder Collective. I mean, that is a major thing, which we'll talk more about on my podcast. Yeah, we're doing, we're doing- We're doing a double. Double, a double <laughs> header. <laughs> double header. Um, that is, that's a great example of sort of an extension of your brand that's perfectly aligned, but also different. Yeah, that's true. How has family affected like- I'm not even, I'm not asking the work-life balance, but. I know, you believe in the hustle, the hustle. Of, beautiful the hustle. Beautiful hustle, yes. I read that so, this morning. What was that like for you, working at a time where we couldn't be as vocal as some people are now about work-life balance and all that, all that stuff? I mean, you definitely could not say the words work-life balance. I don't right. think that was a thing. <laughs> no. Um, well, I was, I have to say, this was one of the things I was pretty smart about. I knew very early, like in my magazine days, which were my 20s, I knew that I should be out every night and connecting with as many people as possible because in my 30s, I knew that I wanted to get married, have kids, and not be out every night. So yep. I put in the time then to be able to reap the benefits in my 30s because in my 30s, I figured if I worked really hard, I'd be more senior and be able to sort of call my shots a little better. Now, I worked for Patty Cohen, who has no children. And a lot of people would say like, oh my God, that must be a nightmare because she doesn't understand. She was the most understanding. Wow. So I was able to work from home one day a week when I had Jonathan, two days a week when I had Sabrina. And I did that for a long period of time. And I was, as you know, on my phone 24-7, working 24-7, regardless of where I was. And I remember Patty came back from a meeting with our CEO and it was about bonuses. And he was like, well, she only works part-time. And Patty lost her shit. She was like, she works harder than any person in this company. Right. And that's when she came to me and she was like, you cannot be labeled as part-time. Right. So then we just did it secretly. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you had another person like fighting for you, like oh, yeah. to the CEO. Like that's baller. Yeah. No, but I've been, that's also why, that's why I have Leave Your Mark because right. I, I am paying forward what, how I was treated. Yep. And so what is Leave Your Mark about? So it's really about empowering yourself on a lot of different levels, mostly professionally. Um, so it's, it's, I did it through the lens of my journey because I grew up loving fashion, but didn't know that was a job, right? It was the 80s. I was pre-med in college. I graduated with a degree in neurobiology and physiology, not very useful. 
And then in my junior year was like, shit, I don't want to do this. Right. So that sets up the book. And then it's it's all of the sort of tough love lessons and very tactical, like whether it's your resume or interviewing, negotiation, bully bosses, all the different personalities you deal with at work. So it's become like a, a sort of guide to a lot of people who who do read it more than once, depending on where they are in their career. And then, of course, later on in the book, it's how you become a great leader. Because obviously, I grew up with great leaders. And I like to consider myself someone who has become a great leader and a mentor. And then the last section was how to rock social media. So the entire story of building um, DQI PR Girl, but more in the sense of like how you build your own personal brand online. And then later, I redid the book in 2018 for paperback, and I added in basically how to be an entrepreneur. Wow. And was that weird to go back and rewrite? Not You didn't rewrite, you added sections. I actually did rewrite a lot of it. Oh, wow. Because once you go in that document, right. there's no turning back. So I went in thinking, well, here's an opportunity. I need to make all the DKNY stuff past tense, so I've got to go in there regardless. And my publisher, they... <laughs> They know me so well. They gave me a lot of opportunities that normally authors don't get. So for example, like LastPass on the original manuscript, I was done. It was like December. I was going away. I was so excited. I wasn't going to have to take this 300-pound monster away on vacation. And I'll never forget, I got an email from my editor and she was like, we don't normally do this for other authors, but we know how particular you are. And we're giving you one last chance to read it. And I was like, no. <laughs> want to read it again. I hate it. But you have to because what if there's a mistake in there? We're just going to change something. So I ended up changing a lot and also updating all the social stuff because that doesn't change. It has changed. But you know what? When I read it then and I read it, I had to read it again recently. I'm like, wow, it's still evergreen. It's crazy. Wow. That's yeah, good. It's good. That's yeah. how you know you wrote a good book. Yeah. So what would you say you learned about being an entrepreneur the second time around? Well, I would say that the first time around, you know, like anyone who starts consulting, you're like, wait, okay, so my annual salary is X. If I divide that by months and divide that by weeks and divide, and then you're like, oh, that's my hourly rate. So I, I sort of did that and I got a lot of pushback from a lot of different people. Sometimes it was they didn't have budget. Sometimes they, you know, whatever, it just, it just fell apart. And I was kind of like, well, then I don't want to do it. Like, I just don't want to do it. And this time around, when I was thinking about rates and also clients, I was like, I, I just don't want to do anything that isn't worth my time because I know what I'm going to put into it. So anyone that nickels and dimes you, like, that's not going to be a good client. Right. It's just not. So I'm really particular. Granted, I, I, I acknowledge my privilege. I understand. I mean, we are a two-income household. Like, I understand that, like, not everyone can do that. But while I can do that, I'm really trying to just be extremely um, disciplined in the way that I think about work. And also at this point, it's like, I'm too old to do stuff I don't want to do. Right. I just, I just don't. I don't want to. <laughs> I feel the way about sweeping. <laughs> sweeping? What I sweep sweeping? my house a lot. There, like there's just crumbs everywhere. What about a vacuum? It doesn't work. What? I, I don't know. It's broken. And I, and I don't know. I probably should just go on Amazon and get a new vacuum. Yeah. But, yeah. But I sweep. Did you do the gravity thing that day that everyone was talking about it? Did <laughs> no. you see that? No. There was a day last week where brooms, apparently NASA said that it's all the time, but if you can stand the, the way the earth, the gravity is, you can stand your broom straight up and it oh. just stays. 
What? Yes, it was a whole thing on Twitter. Oh, whole meme. I need to get on. I need to get back on the Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, are there any challenges that you've had personally or professionally that you've learned something from? I mean, I seven mean, million. Yeah, you've seven learned million. Something, but that you can share. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I've you know my I've had experiences that were less than stellar. You know, especially working. You know, I think when I was spoiled, right? I mean, I worked in an environment where I could say whatever I wanted and my ideas were always welcome. And then when I went back full time the second time to a different company, it was a very different culture. And I learned really quickly how you you really can't paintbrush your personality across every situation. And it was actually a good experience in that sense because I was so not used to working that way that I was like, wow, I need to like check myself sometimes because if I wanted an idea to get pushed through and I wanted to like champion something to happen, like how you present it and like put support behind it and really give, you know, best in class examples and package it. I never really had to do that. I never had to prove like why my idea was a good idea, Donna Karen. But later I did. And that was a good experience because I think there are a lot of situations in jobs where there's, you know, bigger companies, big teams, everyone has ideas. It's like, why should your idea be the one? Right. So dealing with that, I would say that, you know, obviously my first round of consulting was total failure um, in my mind because it just, it didn't feel right. And I didn't, I didn't succeed in the way that I wanted to. And I would say right now, you know, it's an interesting balance between consulting and also doing the podcast, which by the way, my husband calls the cost center. He's like, how's the cost center going? Cost or call? Cost. Cost, cost center. center. Yes. Well, you just tell that man it's going to pay off I in space. I think so, right? Yes. Well, it's kind of like when I was on Twitter back in the day and I was on Twitter 24-7 and he'd be like, are you talking to your fake friends again? And right. I'm like, they're not fake. I promise you this is like real. It's going to pay off. And then I got a book deal. And right. he was like, oh. Yes. So I'm waiting for that moment to be like, see, I told you so. Yeah. Like we turned your podcast into a TV show. Right. <laughs> <laughs> What's your podcast called? Leave Your Mark. Oh, perfect. Duh. Yeah. What advice do you have for founders or women who've started their own businesses who don't lack, I think character and presence is so important, especially if you're representing your own company. And then I meet these like shy, meek, blah humans that might have a great product. Like what would you tell the people that are like feeling that way? And that's not a bad thing. A lot of people feel that way. Like how do you break through and like leave your mark? I think every single person who is a founder should get media trained, regardless if they're doing television. Right. It is an essential skill to be able to present. So I did this amazing, um, I don't know what you call it, a seminar called Own the Room. And it is a public speaking like summit, like two-day summit or something that my friend, Jamie Goodfriend, invited me to. And it they teach you, you do something called a two-minute talk. and it really teaches you how to speak publicly. But I've also been media trained multiple times. And I know exactly what you're saying because, first of all, founder presence, not just presence in real life, but social presence also and how they come off, it all goes into do people want to support this? And even, you know, I was, um, Rachel Blumenthal was on my podcast one time and she was saying, she was like, when people are investing in new founders, they're not investing in the idea necessarily. They're investing in the person. Right. Like you need to be a person that people are like, wow, she's going to do something major. Yep. So 
I think media training. Smart. I mean, look at the debate the other night. I mean, I think Mike Bloomberg needs a new media trainer. He does, but the whole debate made me sad. I'm like, these are just made people everyone sad. shitting on each other. Like, it was, is it, I don't want any of them, you know? <laughs> know? It's just people attacking each other like in high school. I'm like, aren't we better than this? I know, but that's politics always. Ugh, it's, it just made me just like sad for America. So what is one piece of advice you would love to pass on? One piece of advice is to really go out of your way to do stuff for other people and support other people before A, they ask, and B, you need them in return to do something for you. Smart. Because, first of all, it brings me personal joy to do that. Like, I will randomly email people and say, hey, you know what you should do or you should partner with or whatever? Like, I mean, I literally emailed someone yesterday who's the CEO of a major Fortune 500 company. And I was like, these two people need to be around ambassadors because they need help. And like, I mean, I'm not asking for anything. I'm, I'm literally just like, here's an idea. Yep. So I do that constantly because... Well, one, I can't help myself. But two, I find that, you know, the more that you sort of make other people shine, the more it just comes back in spades. Yeah. So, and people don't really think about helping other people until they need help themselves. It's true. It's a flaw. And then, you know, conversely, I think, you know, being gracious with making connections for people. I I can't tell you, and I'm sure you've had this too, how many people will say like, oh my God, I'm going to connect you to so-and-so. And then it's like crickets. Like when I say I'm connecting you, you're getting an email one second later connecting you. Like it's not. She speaks the truth. You did it for me. Yeah. <laughs> I remember doing that. You're like, here's Gail King's email. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did do that. And someone else, I can't remember, but it was like minutes after, like you were in the elevator connecting us. Yes. Well, that's because I don't really write things down. Yes. So if I don't do it that second. Same. It's not happening. Yeah. I have a lot of emails to myself of things I'm supposed to do. So I do calendar notices to myself. Yeah. And what is something we'd be surprised to know about you? That I stuttered growing up my entire life. Really? Yes. How did you get out of it? Oh, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare, actually. So At I, what age did you stop? Um, College? Wow. Yeah. I would have never known. Right. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I went, I, I remember I, I discovered it personally, in third grade because I was called on for reading and I couldn't do it. And the teacher yelled at me. So I guess my version of stuttering was not so much the the sort of repetition of sound, but more just silence. It, the words would get stuck. Like I would like stop breathing and the words would get stuck in my throat. So I ended up going to a speech pathologist like my entire life. Like my mother would drive me into the city twice a week to go to this doctor and I would have to do things like go to the bagel store and order because me, anytime someone would put me on the spot, right. I would freeze. Wow. Like I'd be in a group setting in camp and they'd be like, okay, we're going to go around and everyone's going to say their name. No, cannot do that. Wow. Because I would convince myself I can't speak vowels. And right. hi, Eliza with an A. So that was forever. So any oral book report, any presentation in college, any public speak, I mean, public speaking was like never would I public speak. And then I ended up doing a TED Talk and I ended up speaking at Carnegie Hall and I ended up speaking in front of thousands of people multiple times. And it, it amazes me to this day, like how I, I don't know. I just- One day it just clicked and you're like, I'm over it? I or? think it was like a mind thing. I don't know. Right. I think you psych yourself out sometimes. So that's, that was my big struggle. Wow. I'm impressed because like you went into the, a career where you need your voice and you're going to be called out all the time. Yeah. That was obviously not on purpose, but yes. Yeah. 
Well, thank you. Even sometimes now, like if I ever do like a keynote or something, before I go on stage, there is that moment of, am I going to stutter? Right. Like it's definitely not totally, totally gone because right. there's, there's always that fear. Totally. But you have to push past it. Yeah, you do. I don't have that, but I'm pigeon-toed. I was pigeon-toed too. <laughs> You I were. wore those braces. Oh, you did? Yes. I never wore the braces. I probably should have. But my well, husband's like, you ski pigeon toed. Like, you even have this little... Oh, my God. It's not the blogger pose on purpose. Careful. careful. Your skis will cross. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I'm too old to correct it. It's fine. <laughs> I'll just have like a slightly inverted toe. Yeah. It gives me character. Yes, totally. <laughs> totally. Well, thank you for being on. Oh, my God. Thank you for being so gracious to invite me on. And, and, and thanks for coming on mine right now after we do this. Yes. So exciting. That was Elisa Licht. You can follow her and uh, definitely pick up her book, Leave Your Mark. 